Azmat Khan is a war reporter, among the foremost war reporters in the U.S. If you're my sibling and you're telling me, okay, I'm now going to go as a solo actor to Iraq, to sites that have been hit by airstrikes, I wouldn't love that idea. Well, I was never alone, right? I was always working with people. Actually, that's not true. I was alone sometimes, but... (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I think my family, I will be honest, um, I often don't tell my parents until after the fact, until after I've left a place that I was there. But yeah, I'm, I'm sure they don't love it. <laughs> Asmat Khan is an award-winning investigative journalist. Asma Khan, who is here. Let's bring in Asmat Khan, the investigative reporter who's covered Afghanistan for years. You can hit the right target that you exactly want to hit and still get it wrong. From WBEZ Chicago, this is Art of Power. I'm Arthi Shahani. Today, Asmat Khan did not believe what she read in the papers. And she decided she was going to find out the truth for herself. She put her body on the line, crisscrossed war zones, to figure out how the U.S. wars in Iraq and Afghanistan were actually going. I wanted to hold the U.S. to its own standards. I wanted to understand if what they were saying was true was in fact true. We discuss tricks of the trade how she shook off Iraqi officials who were on her tail, how she distinguished between ISIS fighters and civilians, and we go to a place she doesn't like to visit, at least not in public, her inner life, the emotional toll of living between war and peace. Holding both worlds in your head at the same time, like that's when I feel like I personally feel a toll from the work. And a warning, dear listener, my conversation with Azmat Khan includes graphic descriptions of war zones. Think on your feet for our Fast and Curious 5K, a -a one-of-a-kind race hosted by WBEZ and the Chicago Sun-Times on Saturday, July 27th at Humboldt Park. More info and early bird registration at wbez.org slash events. I just want to get this out of the way so that everyone is clear about the fact that you and I know each other and have a relationship. Yes, we have a deep friendship. <laughs> yes. And the last time we met was in San Francisco, and we went to Banya Bathhouse. Is that too much information? <laughs> I mean, I think anything personal is too much information. So <laughs> what am I doing here right now with you? But <laughs> <laughs> for all the years I've known Asmat Khan – stylized notion in my head about her, that she just woke up one day, bold as hell, and headed off into war zones to find the truth. At what point do you go from being Asmat Khan, the brown girl from Michigan, to Asmat Khan, the war reporter? I've never thought of myself as like Asmat Khan, the brown girl from Michigan. (laughs) Um, Okay. I think we have multi-layered identities. Asmat Khan grew up in Grand Rapids, Michigan. Starting when she was an infant, she and her family would travel to Pakistan almost every summer to visit their homeland and relatives. Growing up, my dad would send us to his village, which was hilarious. We did everything wrong. We were like just giant mistakes in this village. We like, <laughs> we're supposed to learn the language. We confused the word sun. And 
and brother and called our brother our son. And mm. sometimes we would wind up eating the chickens that had been our pets and we would pick what we thought was flowers for potpourri and then everyone would be aghast and it turns out we'd picked opium poppy flowers or something oh, from wow. like okay. some place we were playing in, you know. <laughs> but yes, I mean, you know, you grow up seeing a very different world, like a very rural area. I think it mm-hmm. teaches you to know that there's more out there than what I was seeing in, in Michigan where I grew up, certainly. Hmm. There was not a specific moment Osmat told herself, I'm going to be a war reporter. She was interested in investigative journalism, accountability journalism. She came of age post 9-11 as the U.S. wars in Iraq and Afghanistan unfolded. She heard news reports, glowing reports, about how these wars were going. The Pir Mohammed School in Senjere is being rebuilt by the United States. Building schools and training teachers and supporting girls who were previously denied their right to an education. Leading newsrooms reported we were bringing equality to the Muslim world. Asmat did not believe what she heard. I had set out to see whether or not those claims were true. The claims that the U.S. was funding schools in Afghanistan that would give... That they were operating well, that millions of more girls were in schools, that Mm. people in these areas, these battlefield areas, that there was a battle to win hearts and minds and they were winning them with these. Asmat was working for BuzzFeed News at the time. She convinced her editor to send her to Afghanistan to see if these schools existed, if there were students learning in them, or if they were ghost schools. What I saw was, you know, it wasn't just that these claims were wildly exaggerated, that at times the United States knew that they were peddling lies, that the information they were providing was not correct to the American public. That someone was just pocketing money but not actually building a school. Pocketing money, giving contracts to warlords Mm -hmm. who would then really retaliate uh, or do things that were quite divisive among local populations. And so it actually, in many places, had the opposite effect of winning hearts and minds. Mm -hmm. You had people basically undermine the state because we were working with corrupt foreign actors and injecting tons of money into the country. That investigation in particular taught me, you know, what I was capable of and made me feel like I was more capable to do something that hadn't been done yet, but outside the constraints of a newsroom. Mm. What do you mean, Asmat, that this reporting in Afghanistan about ghost schools, it showed you what you were capable of? What did you learn you were capable of? that I could venture safely to particular battlefield areas and conduct research on the ground, that mm-hmm. I could embed appropriate historical context, that I could really gather this kind of information and write it and, you know, aspire to do something that's quite ambitious and and pull it off, that it is possible, that just because not many people are doing it doesn't mean that it's not possible. I think it gave me a confidence that my instincts were right I actually, I remember before I went to Afghanistan, uh, you know, Ben Smith, the editor-in-chief of BuzzFeed News at the time, he'd come over to me and he was just like, hey, I like this idea. I know you want to go there, but is this so surprising that this is happening? And I was like, yes, Mm. it is. And here's why. Mm. And he was like, okay. And then after it came out, it really like just exploded 
Mm. you know, when it was published and people were astounded and he came over to me and he was just like, I owe you an apology. You were totally right about this. Afghanistan was Asmat's first taste of war reporting. Now let's turn to her next, Iraq and the fight against ISIS. Earlier today, President Obama gave his most full-throated defense of the targeted killing program to date, arguing the program is not only effective, legal and moral, but also his presidential duty. It's interesting to me, part of what caught your eye and brought you to Iraq was reading these really optimistic news accounts. The warfare is increasingly technological and remote. American soldiers are not dying and civilians aren't dying. And you think? And I think that this can't possibly be accurate. I I remember seeing a newspaper that said, the United States has killed in airstrikes. The U.S.-led air campaign has killed 25,000 ISIS fighters. And I had been combing through all of their releases, and I knew that at that point they had admitted eight civilian deaths, I think. Mm. And that was just astounding to me. That would have meant, because the number of ISIS fighters had remained relatively constant over a period of time, around 30,000, it would have meant that we'd airstriked almost the entire population of ISIS, which had then been replaced, right? Like, it, it just wasn't, it couldn't possibly be accurate, but there are all of these obstacles to accounting for that, right? There are... It's incredibly hard to get to these areas with, that ISIS controlled. I mean, they were beheading journalists, State, right? Known as ISIS claims in a video posted online that it beheaded James Foley in retaliation for U.S. action in Iraq. This was not, you don't want to be callous with your safety. Mm. Are we so captured by that, we can't then stop and ask, wait a minute, these numbers don't make any sense about what the U.S. is reporting. Are they true? I think a lot of people were willing to look the other way. It was seen as though, you know, we're not ISIS. We are not operating at those standards. What we're doing must be morally superior, is in fact better, and therefore may not be worthy of that same deep criticism or analysis. Mm -hmm. And so you decide, no, actually, I, I need to go do the math. Yeah, I wanted to hold the U.S. to its own standards. I wanted to understand if what they were saying was true was in fact true because the American public should be well-informed about its wars. Asmat was no longer the employee of a large news organization. She became a solo actor to give herself the freedom, the time to investigate and take as long as it takes. She decided she would go to sites that had been bombed by U.S. drones and do a body count figure out how many civilians were killed, and then compare her tally to the official government tally. I remember turning up in this village, Shora, and they didn't arrest me or anything, but they did take my passport, these, you know, local federal forces. And they're like, what are you doing here, little lady? Let's have tea and talk to you about why you're here. Mm -hmm. And I was like, oh, I'm trying to understand life under ISIS and what civilians endured. I just wanted to interview people. And they were like, okay, but we'd like to come with you. Mm. Now, ethically, that's a problem because if you have security forces with you, you know, it's not just that people are not going to want to tell you the truth, but you're putting them at risk, Mm. right? Mm. For anything they might say. And so I needed to lose them. And my, what I did were just interviews that were all about healthcare under ISIS for a long time. And they were still with me. So then I transitioned into asking about teeth. 
And I asked teeth. So many teeth. Like okay. so many questions about teeth. And finally they were like, okay, this is really boring. You can just go ahead and do this without us. Um, so you basically bored them into leaving you alone. Exactly. Yeah. Uh-huh. And then I was able to like just case the rest of that village over days. Uh-huh. And then bring me on your travel log. Then what happens? Then I went to Mosul. I was finally able to get to Mosul. So yeah, so I'm like finding people, I'm finding mass casualty incidents that occurred uh-huh. that the military, you know, at the time had said they were non-credible and I was documenting um, everything I could. So I would get, if people had death certificates, I would photograph them. If they had images of the ID cards of those in their family who had died, I would take photos of them. I would take photos of their injuries mm-hmm. to the best of my ability, what was happening. And that was one of the questions that I always wondered about in reading your work is, so when you're on the ground and you're going, it's like door to door, you know, door knocking where, where, where there may still be doors or not and asking people to tell you what happened. I mean, like, how do you know if someone is actually a civilian versus a member of ISIS? So we have a problem in post 9-11 thinking where we automatically assume that you have to prove that somebody isn't something. And the default position is that they are, unless you can prove otherwise. I see. Which I just illustrated, which I literally you just, just illustrated. illustrated. Because I basically just said, how do you know someone's not guilty? As opposed to how do you know they're guilty? We don't ask our military, how do you know that they're guilty? Show us your evidence. Mm. Or if we ask, they'll say, we can't show it to you. It's classified. Mm. And that's a problem. Now, there are a number of reasons how I met that standard. Um, The number one is that in these areas that I was in, people had been informing on those who were members of ISIS. You were not allowed to come back to these neighborhoods if you had been one. Right. So that's one thing is that there's a lot of local policing that's happening in these places. So, Mm. in fact, I do believe my sample is biased. I think it's biased in favor of of those who were pro-government. Right. Of those who were most persecuted by ISIS. Um, Because local police had been sifting out those people so vigorously. Yes. And people were very open uh, about who had been collaborators and who hadn't. You know, when you're in the place where something took place and around that neighborhood, people are less likely to lie because you're asking them in the earshot of others. Mm. Um, And so I've seen people when they have attempted to say something that isn't true, whether it's on purpose or whether they just didn't have the correct details and were confused. I've seen other people correct them and be like, no, 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 that's not what happened. And you build it up over time. So, you know, I would look at the rubble as well. And was there any evidence that there had been ISIS presence there? Sometimes you can tell from particular things that are left behind. Such um, as? No, such as the body parts, like human remains is a sign that ISIS had been there because civilians wouldn't bury ISIS remains. They would mm-hmm. just be left to rot. Um, you know, particular kinds of vests or belts meant they had been in the area. Um, mm. But no one thing alone is evidence of whether somebody is ISIS or not. It's the culmination of all of these things. And then what I did, and it, this is even harder if you can believe it, is getting the coalition to check every coordinate and whether or not they had conducted it. Meaning going to the U.S. and allies and saying, I want to confirm you struck this place. Saying, look, I found an airstrike here on this date in this area. Here's the before and after satellite imagery. Did you conduct this? And that was hard to get an answer to. 
Oh, in the beginning, they told me we can only provide you four. Any more than that is just beyond our capacity. Four targets? Yes. For security reasons? No, because they felt like it would be too difficult to look up that many for me. They were just like, this is ridiculous. And I, you know, responded. I said, look, it's in your best interest. You know, you should tell me. You would want to tell me, I would think, whether or not you were responsible for these strikes. And, you know, I'm willing to extend the deadline. I'm happy to wait longer. And we, you know, and I ultimately, one of the things I said was like, if you're not going to check more than four, then I I will write that you would only check four. I would state your reasons for why, Mm. which is, you know. Which might shame them. But but I'll write that. And they were really upset by that. They were extremely upset. I got a very angry email stating like, don't give us ultimatums. That's not how this is going to work. From U.S. authorities. Mm -hmm. And then a few days later, They checked all of them and provided me their responses. Interesting. And that indignation, I mean, part of me is confused by it because I think U.S. agencies know that American journalists would ask these kinds of questions. I don't think anybody had ever come to them with the, I think at the time, this first batch, it was 60 coordinates. So I don't think anybody, an American journalist, had ever done the research on the ground to like go to that many strikes provide them the geolocations of them and the dates or the date ranges they occurred and give them satellite imagery before and after and say, did you do this? Did you do this? Did you do this? Not in that number. So I think it was just that nobody had done this particular thing. The United States claims the war against ISIL is one of the most precise air campaigns in history. Asmat Khan ended up surveying more than 100 sites that were hit by America's precision strikes. But a recent New York Times investigation found that civilians in Iraq are actually dying at 31 times that rate. According to it, one in five coalition strikes in Iraq resulted in civilian deaths. So why this discrepancy? Well, a lot of this came down to... The U.S. military had claimed that one out of every 157 airstrikes resulted in the death of a civilian. Asmat found it was more like one in five deaths were civilians, including many children. And that's likely an undercount. That's likely an undercount. In fact, after publishing, somebody, you know, in the military reached out to me and said, we think it's even higher. Do they officially reach out to you and tell you that? No, this was somebody, a source who came to me who knows internally a great deal. And so that leads directly into the next thing I was wondering about, which is, How did the military react to your reporting? Sounds like you made some friends inside. The military said, I think in a letter in response to somebody, a congressman who'd asked about it, this investigation shows the tragic costs of war. And they never disputed any of the findings, Mm. any of the statistics. I saw some even just press officials whom I'd spoken with at various points, like retweeting the piece. Um, So I was surprised by that, but maybe, you know, with what I've learned in the time since about some people being driven to really care about that kind of accountability, it's not so surprising. I did not get much pushback. And I think that part of that is because we were so careful, you know, it was like such an undercount. It's interesting. I mean, what you're describing here in terms of like a power dynamic at play, though, is that by kind of undercounting, downplaying, being conservative about what you had, you created a shield for yourself. It protected you from what would have been some very predictable blowback. I think it was enough of a difference, this one in five, 
was 31 times higher was such a significant difference that even if it was an undercount, I was very comfortable publishing it because it, I think it was so illustrative of how little we might know. Yeah. And shocking to the everyday reader like me. Asma, does your identity ever get in the way of either the work that you're doing in this reporting or how your work is received? And there are many parts to your identity. You can choose any part of it, but... Well, I think it's like a perception of identity. Uh And so I think there are certain national security reporters who will assume, because you have your particular name, that you're, you know, I'm not going to get too into it, but like I do know people who would be predisposed to, to seeing me through the prism of an identity as like, oh, she's just the brown girl who reports from the ground. With the Muslim name. Yeah, exactly. And were there also military officials who would try to undermine you, either because of your religion or maybe what you studied in college? Once there was a military official, a former military official, Hmm. who, and this is the only person, Hmm. I just want to be careful about how I say this. Once there was a military official who said that I have no record as a service member Hmm. and no training in, I have no military education and that I have a background in women's studies. So how can you take my work at face value when I don't have those qualifications? Mm. And, you know, it was very much meant to undermine (laughs) the degrees I have and the work I have, but it wasn't, like saying these things is not, you know, explicit arguments about my work. It was personal. And mm-hmm. I remember looking at it and being like, I would love to engage with you if you had thoughtful criticisms you brought to me. But no, instead you brought what I could only describe as a means to undermine me based on his perceptions of what it takes to do this work, that you must only be in the military. To be clear, Asmat, when I ask you that, it's like, even at the level of your voice, you know, it's so feminine. Um, how you look, you look like a young woman, right? Um, and, (laughs) and so those are compliments and those are also like, I imagine that will get in the way of you being taken seriously. That's a great point. I don't know exactly how I'm perceived in every context, but I do know that sometimes being, seen as like harmless or a little old lady can can be to your advantage, right? It's why I wasn't arrested in that village and mm. maybe a male colleague of mine would have been, right? Mm. Um, sometimes it can make people just feel more comfortable talking around you. Um, yeah, sure. Sometimes it can mean that somebody is less likely to take your work extremely seriously. But I think at the end of the day, my approach has been, I'm not going to think too much of about these things. And instead I'm just going to focus on the work, right? Because it is, it's so much work. It's so much work. At the end of the day, the results will speak for themselves. And does that just come to you innately, this ability to keep eye on the prize, or have you had to work with yourself on that? Early on, I thought about it more and then realized that Thinking about it too much would keep me from executing. Mm. I mean, I, I know that, that that investigation, the Uncounted, it grew out of a feeling of 
you know, your best revenge is your paper. Like, I will just do my work. Like, mm-hmm. you know what? I'm capable of this. I'm going to go do this. Watch. Oprah said that. Success is the best revenge. <laughs> yeah, Beyonce said that, right? Like, your best revenge is your paper. After the break? Azmat is the type of person that she will not stop in the middle. She has to go all the way. And most of the time, she really gets hurt. I can tell that she's hurting. We meet an Iraqi man who lost his family and began to work closely with Azmat. This is Art of Power. I'm Arthi Shahani. Think on your feet for our Fast and Curious 5K, a -a one-of-a-kind race hosted by WBEZ and the Chicago Sun-Times on Saturday, July 27th at Humboldt Park. More info and early bird registration at wbez.org slash events. Hey, listeners, we are starting a new feature this season. Ask Arthi anything. Are you trying to change your career? Figuring out what major to pick in college? Unsure how to fund a bold project? Write to us at artofpower at wbez.org about the specific problem you were navigating. I, along with my incredible guests, will help you and potentially feature you in an upcoming episode. Again, that's artofpower at wbez.org. In journalism, we refer to the people we meet and interview as sources. For tragic reasons, the single most important source in Azmat Khan's work is a man named Basim Razo. What happened to Basim was really just, you know, he woke up in the middle of the night and he looked up and he couldn't see his roof. He saw the stars over Mosul. And just a few inches away where his wife was, there was concrete. And he's calling for his wife, he's calling for his daughter, and no one's answering. He learns when he wakes up at a hospital that his wife, his daughter, his brother, and his nephew were all killed. And in the time after this, the United States actually uploaded a video to YouTube showcasing the strike, calling the two homes of him and his brother a car bomb factory. And he sets out on his own to try to get justice for what happened, to get an answer, to get an apology. And he's not succeeding. Compared to most Iraqis, Razo is uniquely well-positioned to get a response, an apology, because he has extensive ties to the U.S. He lived here and studied here, engineering at Western Michigan University. One of his relatives is a tenured professor at Yale Law School. His English is superb, and still, his claim goes nowhere. Asmat heard about his story, found him, and arranged to meet him in Baghdad. And I remember that, I think I specifically asked him about his wife and what she was like. I saw his lower lip tremble, and I asked other questions, you know, kind of moved mm-hmm. on mm-hmm. and just got to know him. You know, we had lunch every day for a few weeks. Oh, wow. Not every day, but like several times. Each time, you know, I told him, hey, you know, I'd like us to talk about the night of. 
And we'd get to lunch and he would be like, we would eat. And he would say like, Asmat, I'm having such a good day today. I'm in such a good mood. I don't want to talk about it today. Mm. And I would say, okay. Mm. And he did that to me every time. And I left without it. <laughs> and I remember my reporting partner was like, what, what were you doing? You were supposed to come back with that. And I was just like, look, you know, he's, he's telling me he's having a great day. What am I going to do? <laughs> Ruin his day? No. Um, but eventually he got more comfortable over time as well. And, and we did it. And, and in time, he's like, now he'll tell you he's quite able to talk about it. He wants mm -hmm. to talk about it. Mm -hmm. um, but it just took that kind of slower, longer process to do it. You connected me with him, with Basim Raza. Mm -hmm. And part of what he described to me was the way that you built trust with him was over time, like you're saying, actually getting to know each other. And then also you just really showed up for him. And so he tells me about a time that you then intervened. I'm going to play what he said, okay? Okay. Well, she started uh, writing to the DOD, to the coalition, to, to the air base in Qatar. And uh, she just kept nagging at them for answers. She... I mean, she wouldn't stop. I mean, she kept emailing and emailing and emailing. And uh, <laughs> finally, they just gave her something. They gave her some information. It's true. Yeah, I think that when you're an investigative reporter, you seek out information, right? And I, I remember the first time that I asked someone about that strike, they were like, we have no record of this in our log, even though I'd included the video. And then I was like, look... Again, I'll point you to this video. I'll point you to the comments on that video that members this of This video that the U.S. uploaded on YouTube. Yes. Okay. And I was like, look okay. at the comments on them. The, the comments state that their civilian family members were killed in this incident. I'm attaching the coordinates for the strike and the satellite imagery from it and this mm. and that. I'd like you to let me know. And so they would tell me like, okay, we found eventually. They were like, yes, we, we found this. Then I filed okay. a FOIA request, a request under the Freedom of Information Act, to get what I now knew to be that record, because they've told me it's now been completed, and said, you should give this to me quickly because this person fears for his life. Um, you know, he, mm. he believes he's at risk because he's been erroneously targeted and dubbed ISIS in this online video. So other people might think he's ISIS and then attack him. Exactly. And so he's, he's afraid uh -huh. of this. And you have records that, that show you, even you have assessed that to be otherwise. And I want to write about that. And so I got it in like four months instead of four years. And, and then they even also made him a payment offer because one of the questions I'd asked was like, look, I understand that there's a fund that the U.S., you know, that has been authorized by Congress for payments to civilians. Are you planning on making a payment to Mr. Razo? And then this was the very first payment offer for a civilian death that they made in the entire anti-ISIS air war was to, to boss him. And the offer amount for losing four people and his home was... The amount they offered was $15,000. And he said it was an insult. And he declined. What do you think? Do you think it was an insult? Well, it's not my... Um, you know, I, I have been, for my book that I'm writing, I've been thinking a lot about what we owe to those we harm and how we place a value on people. Not just mm -hmm. foreign civilians, but when we do insurance, when we compensate somebody for the loss of a, of a military service member, of a family member, these are not meant to be compensation, right? They're payments that are made to express condolence to 
sympathize with somebody. But at the same time, like I know that they have paid, you know, uh, the family of an Italian man more than a million dollars who was killed in an American drone strike in Pakistan. Like I know what they've paid other people. And I can't help but wonder, what does that mean? What does that tell us about how we value the lives of others? I mean, it sounds like Iraqi life is cheap. That's exactly what Bossom said. He said, is this what an Iraqi life is worth? It's cheap. And can you tell me, Asma, in this relationship you developed with Bossom, advocating for him and you know I played that bit of tape no I don't I don't say I was advocating for him remember oh, I was doing me. my journalism excuse like I was me. I was pursuing <laughs> you, the reporting you were documenting a story and that that's my bad and I'll correct it it's okay you weren't advocating for him you were reporting you were documenting what happened it had the effect of helping him what's the lesson there in how power works the fact that Iraqi life is, in this instance, cheaper than, for example, Italian life, cheaper than, for example, American life. Why is it that way? What's driving down the value of that life in these monetary terms? I think there are a number of reasons. I think American people can relate more to Italians than they do to some of the people in places where we conduct our wars. I think it has to do with who has the means to contest it. That man in Italy, like his family was vocal and they had means and they had the ability to engage on that issue. And there were going to be Western allies that were going to take up his death. Mm -hmm. In Iraq, you have a government that has welcomed many of these airstrikes, in fact, was asking for more to help defeat ISIS. And so you're not faced with powerful actors pushing for them, advocating for them. Do you believe that your work is helping to shift that power disparity? I know it resulted in a bill in Congress or a a section of the defense spending bill that was supposed to create a civilian casualty policy. And we can point to things like that that have Mm -hmm. resulted from my work. But I think the real difference is that people can now relate to some of the people who've been harmed by this. They hear them in podcasts I've done and in reporting I've done. They've read their accounts. I think that people might read going forward. They might look at some of the statements or claims that our government might put out about its wars more skeptically. Mm. Mm -hmm. And I think they might also understand that there is a fundamental lack of accountability that's taking place. Bassem Razo became one of your go-tos on the ground. And he told me about a time you were visiting Mosul to speak with more families. This is in follow-up reporting that you've done. You and Mr. Razo went to go visit a man, uh, a man who'd had two wives. He lost both of them, as well as his 13 children. And this is uh, Mr. Razo's account of it. 
This guy, we when we first visited him, I felt that he was, I mean, he was with us physically, but he was not with us mentally. The guy was like gazing and we're talking to him uh, as if he's not listening to us. And then suddenly he broke, he said, you know how I'm living my day? I'm living on cigarettes, pills, and tea. And uh, we visited him again a year later, and uh, he was so upset with us uh, because he thought that Azmat has the magic wand, that she would do everything for him. But when we visited him the next time, he said, well, you did nothing for us. You have no compensation for me. I have no house. I have no... So he was really upset. And on the third visit, when Azmat came last year, I said, Azmat, do not go to his house because this guy is bitter. So do not go to him. I mean, people have been through so much. And, you know, you can state as many times as you'd like that I'm only a journalist. I can only do these particular things. And I think it's very difficult to walk that role when there's no one else doing it. Like, this is not, I'm not an advocate. Did you go back to his house that third time? No, I didn't, no. You know, Asmat, when Basim Razo told me that anecdote, I got upset and frankly, like, protective for you. Because I mean, like, you have not chosen an easy route. And I guess I was just wondering, do you ever feel like, oh, come on, folks, like, cut me some slack? I don't see the fact that they might be mad at me as a, I mean, I, I wouldn't want them to feel that way, but I don't think I'm upset with them for feeling that way. It makes, it seems entirely reasonable to me if you have no one else to turn to that they might associate me with with something other than what I am supposed to do. But I do think I have felt frustration for a long time that advocates are not in this role and that the military is not in this role. Like I felt mm. a great deal of frustration about that. You know, I thought my work many years ago would address some of these things, and yet there still isn't a payment policy. There are very few mm. payments made. Um, and so I had to do it all over again, more, over years. Um, like I've been mm. continuing with this work for like more than five years now, and I think my work has gotten even deeper in recent years and stronger. And like, if this won't result in some of those things, I, I, I would not question the value of my doing them because I would do them regardless of whether they had potential for impact. Asmat Khan is not a one and done. Her latest work, featured on the cover of the New York Times magazine, builds on everything she has done up to this point. In the process, Asmat revealed that the American air war against ISIS, which the U.S. describes as the most precise in history, 
was resulting in a staggering number of civilian deaths. Asma Khan exposes the true human toll of U.S. airstrikes. In Asma's first major investigation, she visited sites hit by U.S. drones to count the true civilian death toll in the war against ISIS. In her second, she sued the Pentagon for their own internal reports on these civilian deaths. She got back more than 1,300 confidential records. That is huge. She combed through them, looked for patterns, and asked, what can the U.S. military do to be better, to kill fewer innocent men, women, and children? Why are we getting it wrong so often? The military has itself admitted that they have work to do on confirmation bias. And they said, look, we have more work to be done. We know it's a problem. We know we need more communications between strike cells. And they said things like, The fog of war is often difficult to navigate. Confirmation bias. When the military wants to see someone as a terrorist, they do, even when there's stark evidence to the contrary. Basically, it's a polite academic way of saying, y'all are being kind of racist. There's an incident I looked at where a USAID official accurately saw from the intelligence that was presented to her that 10 children might die. And no one agreed with her. And they went ahead and did this, and 10 children died. In fact, more than that, um, when I went on the ground, uh, 21 members of a family died, including many children. And like, what does that tell you if somebody outside of the military was the one who seemed not to be marred by confirmation bias? Like, What does that tell you about the systems and structures? It raises important questions. And so I think addressing it is not going to be a simple fix. What is the personal toll for the person who's doing this? I guess there's two parts of my brain in which I engage with this work. So there are times in which I can talk about this work with just what sounds like cold distance. And it's often because I am dealing with the the numbers or the findings. And the other part of me that I think can struggle sometimes is when I have to talk in great detail about something that happened to somebody or that they recounted. And these little details, especially about families, so move me, right? Like I, there's a relative in in Boston's family that it's his sister-in-law, his, his wife's sister told me, I wake up from a nap or a dream and she was in my dream. And when I wake up, I can smell her in the air. I can smell my mm-hmm. sister. Mm-hmm. I'm like, I love my sister so much. So like, I can relate to that so strongly. Like, what would I do? And that weighs on you over time. But I think that if I didn't have the accountability portion of it, it would be very hard work to do. If I wasn't an investigative journalist, if I was just like a magazine or feature writer who wrote about hear these things that have happened to people, I think it would be very difficult for me. I don't think I would be able to do it for this long, but because there is that other part of it, it's manageable. I think that the times that I've been the most stressed or impacted by the work is not when I'm in the field, it's when I'm back or it's when I'm dealing with something that's back here and there's like a distortion of these very different worlds when they collide. So I was like, (laughs) when I was in Afghanistan recently... I spent the whole day in this village 
with survivors of airstrikes who were telling me these wrenching stories. And now I have to just talk to some people on the internet over Zoom Mm -hmm. in New York about things that seem so insignificant and silly. And I got extremely frustrated. And then somebody will tell me about their problems with their nanny or something like that. And I'll be extremely frustrated. It's the (laughs) holding both worlds in your head at the same time. Like that's when I feel like I... Mm. personally feel a toll from the work. Mm. Because one world feels consequential and real and the other feels in in certain ways kind of petty or disconnected. I think it's made me feel that way about some parts of my life here and frustrated with people and less empathetic and willing to listen. (laughs) That's honest. (laughs) I think that it can make you feel guilty about a life you lead that is good. I think that, you know, one of the hardships of my work sometimes has been like winning awards for it and then not seeing anything good happen for the people whose accounts and storytelling was the basis for my ability to tell these stories, right? Um, Uh I think about that a lot. Yes, there's stuff that I struggle with and I can get sad, but I also don't try to repress that either. Like people I know, sometimes when I talk about this, my voice will crack or I might tear up and I don't think of that as unhealthy. I think of it as a natural expression of the seriousness of the material I'm working with. I think of it as a, like I would hate to be a person who thought about this stuff and spent so much time with people and didn't have, didn't feel moved, you know? Like, what would that say about me if I lacked that ability to, to do that? I mean, I don't lean into it too hard, but I think there's like a balance of allowing yourself to emote in certain contexts and spaces. You know, I have self-care. Everyone does, right? Um, well, yeah, we, we went to... The bathhouse together. <laughs> into the bathhouse. That's not my normal means, but I. It really was nice. <laughs> Asma, you don't do personal interviews. Why'd you do this one? Because you kept asking, and you kept sending your producer to ask, <laughs> and I just was like, it was oh, the like, and I feel like I've said no to you so many times. <laughs> We're like, um. Because it's you. I listened to some of your other interviews and a part of me was like personally curious. Like I know your behind the scenes process here where you like talk to other people. And like in what world can you usually get this kind of <laughs> this multi-pronged analysis? And I'm <laughs> sure it leads to like self-reflection and your questions are so good that I'm like, oh, I bet she like forces you to confront things you wouldn't think about. So genuinely, it was partly that, that I think that process was part of it. Knowing that was like, oh, this could be really interesting and, and useful. <laughs> You're going to kill me for asking this. Oh my gosh, I love you so much. I know. This is so funny. Okay, go ahead. What? What do you know? Nothing. Go ahead. <laughs> <laughs> um, do you make time to date? not what I thought you were going to ask. <laughs> Is it better or worse? Okay. Um, we're not going to talk about this, but I appreciate your asking. Okay. What did you think I was going to ask? 
Nothing. <laughs> oh, come on. That's not fair. That, that. What you asked. What you asked. No, it's not. You thought I was going to ask something else. <laughs> All right. Maybe you'll text me later and tell me. But... <laughs> <laughs> My lessons from Azmat Khan. One, when you hold yourself to the very highest standard and hold back certain punches you could throw, you protect yourself and your work from haters. Sometimes self-restraint is the best strategy. Two, balance the head and the heart. Being very analytical, that can help you through a difficult emotional journey. And feeling your emotions can help you release steam. You need both. Three, let people underestimate you. When they don't know what's coming, that punch you do throw can really knock them out. This episode of Art of Power was produced by Justin Bull, Hina Shravastava, and me, Arthi Shahani. Our intern is Sylvia Goodman. Our executive producer is Kevin Dawson. If you like what you heard, give us five stars on Apple Podcasts, show some love, or share it. Nothing like word of mouth. Tell me what you think. On Instagram and Twitter, I'm at Arthi411, A-A-R-T-I-411. For exclusive offers, you can sign up for the Art of Power newsletter at wbez.org slash AOP newsletter. See you next week. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR.